We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And away we go, episode 122 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, August 13th, 2021. Yes, it is Friday the 13th. Are you scared? Should we be scared? Well, if your name is Dustin Hopkins, you perhaps should be scared. Although Rod Rivera, during his postgame press conference late night, on Thursday night, did not make a big deal out of what went down for old D-Hop earlier in the evening. Two field goal misses, two bad field goal misses in the Washington football team's preseason opener. A 22-13 loss at the New England Patriots. Yes, we have a football game to talk about on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast on what is the first postgame installment of the pod for the Washington football team, an in-depth breakdown of Washington's game at the Pats, including, yes, the Dustin Hopkins situation coming up next segment. Beyond Hopkins, I actually thought there was a good bit to like from Thursday night. Uh, Also on the show, did you see the news on Thursday regarding former Washington corner Quentin Dunbar? I will put a proper bow on the Quentin Dunbar saga with Washington later in the show. I will talk Nationals, who got swept in a doubleheader at the New York Mets, and we had big Orioles news on Thursday. Chris Davis announcing his retirement. I will discuss that as well as yet another Orioles loss that's now eight straight. John Means rocked on Thursday in a 6-4 loss to the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards to complete a three-game sweep. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. A reminder to uh, all of you listening, if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Doing so costs you nothing. And if you would be so kind, uh, please 
Give the podcast a five-star rating and write just like a one-sentence review or more if you prefer saying how much you like the podcast. Doing those things helps us out a lot. Got this email from Michael King. He says, I don't understand their, as in the Washington football team's, infatuation with bad kicker Hopkins. Can they find no one else to miss 40-yard field goals just a little less? Great show as always. And by the way, keep the song. Ah, another fan of the intro music. You can't help but love it at this point. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it is amazing. And I've talked about this. Dustin Hopkins has been Washington's kicker since 2015. He's entering year seven as Washington's kicker. Like that's one of the longest tenures any kicker has ever had with our football team. The standard by which all Washington kickers are judged is Mark Mosley. He was Washington's kicker for 12 and a half seasons, 1974 to the middle of the 1986 season. When I was a kid, Chip Miller was Washington's kicker. He was Washington's kicker for seven seasons, 1988 to 1994. And assuming that Dustin Hopkins is Washington's kicker for this coming season, and I guess we can't assume that now, but it sure sounds like Ron Rivera is in Dustin Hopkins' corner. This will be season number seven for Dustin Hopkins as Washington's kicker. And it's not just that he's been Washington's kicker, it's that there's been so little competition brought in for Dustin Hopkins over the years. It would be one thing if he was an all-time great kicker. He's not terrible. He's had good kicking seasons, but he's also had bad kicking seasons. And he's not someone who you look at and say, well, you can't bring in competition for him. Why would you do that? This guy's an all-time great. No, he's not. You know, I thought in 2017, Dustin Hopkins was in trouble. Hopkins in the 2017 season missed eight games due to a right hip injury. His replacement, Nick Rose, went 10 of 11 on field goals, including nailing a 55-yard field goal late in the fourth quarter of a 38-30 loss to the Minnesota Vikings at FedEx Field in week 11 of that 2017 season. But sure enough, Dustin Hopkins got his job back. This guy's like Teflon when it comes to the Washington football team. We'll see if this latest speed bump ends up costing Dustin Hopkins his spot as Washington's kicker. Lots to get into with the Washington football team's quarterbacks on display on Thursday night. Lots to talk about when it comes to Jarrett Patterson on Thursday night. Bunch of other guys were out there making plays as well. But speaking of making plays, when it comes to selling your home, ain't no better playmaker than John Grandland of Real Broker, the master of commission flex. If you are in a position in which you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home and you have questions, contact my guy, John Grandlin, aka John G. He's a huge Washington football team fan. I know that he was watching on Thursday night, and he is the master of what we call commission flex. You know that Ron Rivera loves position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, John Grandlin is the originator of commission flex. Ron has position flex. John G has commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's very simple. Flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? That doesn't make sense. That has never made sense. And so John Grandlin is changing the game. No more of this. Well, you have to pay 6%. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, why should you have to pay 6%? Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you. That will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, 
You heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar. And maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. Yeah, you heard that right. Guaranteed. John Granlin guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G. now. The phone number is 703-537-6747. When you call John Granlin, make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask him about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, the commission flex. This is a phone call that literally could make you tens of thousands of dollars, could save you tens of thousands of dollars. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit John G sells for free.com. That's John G sells for free.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. That's right, Ron. Just like position flex. All right, so here we go. The breakdown of the Washington football team's preseason opener. A 22-13 loss at the New England Patriots on Thursday night. I actually thought the game moved pretty quickly. These preseason games, there's that initial excitement, and then as the game goes on, you're like, all right, uh, when is this thing going to be over? But I thought the game moved pretty well. So, you know, this was not torture by any stretch. It was good to see the guys out there. It was good to see a lot of what we ended up seeing out there over the course of the game. I'm going to be playing for you over the course of this segment the most relevant things that Ron Rivera had to say at his post-game press conference late night on Thursday night as I will be giving to you the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington game. I've been doing the front five for years. I am bringing that to the Al Galdi podcast. Expect five big takeaways and much more after every Washington football team game. So in terms of guys who did not play for Washington Thursday night at the Pats. As expected, no Kyle Allen due to him having aggravated his surgically repaired left ankle at training camp practice on July 31st. Montez Sweat did not play due to illness, although the belief is that the illness is not COVID-19, so everyone can calm down. Uh, Matt Ioannidis did not play. He has been ramped up very slowly of having been on the reserve COVID-19 list from July 29th to August 3rd. It's interesting with Ioannidis because him having only been on the reserve COVID-19 list for that short of a period of time, right, July 29th to August 3rd, suggested that Ioannidis may well have been a close contact, and maybe he was, but this slow ramp-up seems to indicate that maybe he wasn't. Uh, We just don't know. We do know that he had COVID-19 previously. It is possible to get it again. Uh, But anyway, whatever the case, Ioannidis is being uh, moved along slowly here. No Curtis Samuel, right? He is on the active, physically unable to perform list due to a groin injury. No Greg Stroman. He too is on the active, physically unable to perform list. Uh, Stroman was put on that list on day one of training camp, July 27th, as was Samuel. Although remember, Samuel then got moved to the reserve COVID-19 list and then got moved back to the active, physically unable to perform list. And no David Sharp, as he is still on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington put him on that on July 31st. All right, so let's get into it here. The front five, my five biggest takeaways from Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots. Takeaway number one, all three of Washington's quarterbacks look good. 
Uh, this, to me, was the biggest thing to take away from the game. The quarterback play, which we all know needs to be so much better for Washington this coming season, was better in this game. Now, what does that mean, preseason opening game? Not a ton. I'll grant you that. But I liked what we saw. I liked the concerted effort to throw the football overall in this game by the Washington football team. Washington quarterbacks ended up totaling 47 pass attempts and ended up targeting, get this, 20 different pass catchers. The football was spread around on Thursday night. The passing game got a lot of work on Thursday night. I very much wanted that. Now, would I have wanted for Ryan Fitzpatrick to play for a little more? Yeah. Uh, Fitzpatrick played for less than a quarter, played for just two offensive drives. He went five of eight for 58 yards, no touchdowns, had no interceptions, took no sacks. I said I wanted a minimum of 15 pass attempts for Fitzpatrick. We got a little more than halfway there. Uh, I would have liked for him to have played more and totaled more pass attempts, but it was a rainy night at Gillette Stadium. I am mindful of that. And Fitzpatrick was able to at least make multiple explosive passing plays. So Washington's first offensive drive, what was the first offensive drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter punt. Second snap of that drive, Fitzpatrick, a second and seven, 22-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Love seeing that. Fitzpatrick throwing a great ball that McLaurin caught in stride. And the way that Fitzpatrick threw that ball allowed for McLaurin to generate significant yardage after the catch. You know, just kind of eyeballing it. I measured like 10 yards after the catch for McLaurin on that play. So terrific play there. The throw of the game for Fitzpatrick, I thought, came on Washington's second offensive drive. The drive that resulted in the first Dustin Hopkins missed field goal try, his first quarter missed 40-yard field goal attempt. Third snap of that drive, Fitzpatrick, a third and 10, 24-yard shotgun completion to Logan Thomas on a beautiful back shoulder play. I mean, nice catch by Thomas, but nice throw by Fitzpatrick. And then on the sixth snap of that drive, Fitzpatrick with the pocket squeezing down a third and five, six-yard shotgun completion to Adam Humphreys. So, I mean, not a lot to evaluate with Ryan Fitzpatrick, but I thought that he did look good during his time in the game. Taylor Heineke, to me, looked good. So Heineke entered the game late in the first quarter and to begin Washington's third offensive drive. Heineke went 9 of 15 for 86 yards, no touchdowns and no interceptions, took one sack. He wasn't perfect, but he did what he does, and that is make plays. I don't know that Taylor Heineke is a guy who is ever going to overwhelm you in practice. Taylor Heineke, to me, is more of a game player. He is a gamer. Okay, the things that he does best, his biggest strengths are not things that necessarily convey in practice. And sure enough, we saw plenty of flashes of the Taylor Heineke who was on display in the wildcard loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in January on display in this game on Thursday night. Washington's third offensive drive resulted in a late first quarter punt, first snap of the drive. Heineke, a first and 10, 11-yard under center play action completion to a wide open Antonio Gibson. Third snap of the drive, Heineke, a second and 11, 7-yard shotgun completion to Deami Brown. Heineke on the play doing a nice job of moving to his left and throwing on the run. Fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke did overthrow and open Deami Brown on a third and four shotgun incompletion. So that was disappointing to see. Like I said, Heineke was not perfect. The other thing about that play, and if you have the game on DVR, go back and watch this. Samuel Cosme totally gets away with a false start on the play. Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in a second quarter punt, third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a third and one, four yard under center play action boot scramble run. So there you go, the mobility on display. Uh, the snap after that, Heineke does take a sack, a first and 10 sack for a seven yard loss. The sack was by the Patriots edge rusher to Sean Bauer and Bauer on the play just abused 
Washington tight end to Merrick Hemingway. And Hemingway had some issues blocking on Thursday night. He certainly had issues on that play. He also had major issues on a passing play in the fourth quarter. He literally got run over onto his back in that moment in the fourth quarter. So a rough evening when it came to pass pro for Tamaric Hemingway. But for Heineke then on the snap that followed the sack by Tashawn Bauer, a nice second and 17, 19-yard shotgun completion to John Bates in the middle of the field. That was really good to see. Uh, so another good play there for Heineke. The first touchdown drive of the game for Washington. This was Washington's fifth offensive drive. Peyton Barber capping it late second quarter, third and goal, one yard, I formation, handoff, touchdown run, third snap of the drive. Heineke, first and 10, 18 yard shotgun completion to Steven Sims. Sixth snap of the drive, Heineke, a third and three, nine yard shotgun play action completion to Deami Brown. And then on the ninth snap of the drive, one of the best plays of the game for Heineke. This is a classic off-schedule broken play connection. Heineke on a third down. This was third and 10. He finds Jarrett Patterson on an 11-yard shotgun completion on a broken play. Heineke off running backwards and to his right somehow found Patterson, who made a really good-looking diving forward catch at the two. Again, Heineke, the playmaker, on display. We'll talk more about Jarrett Patterson coming up in a bit. Rod Rivera during his postgame press conference late night on Thursday night on Heineke's performance at the Pats. Oh, I thought Tyler picked up right where he left off. You know, the, the guy's a high dynamic energy type player, did a lot of good things, um, made some good decisions. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I just, I, I like who he is as a football player for us right now. There's a lot to like about Taylor Heineke. I know it's popular to dismiss him. I know it's popular to say that there is no quarterback competition. I don't know to what extent there is a quarterback competition. Only Ron Rivera truly can tell us that. I do know, though, that Taylor Heineke brings a lot to the table. And if you could somehow guarantee that he stays healthy, I think this guy could be a quality starting quarterback in the NFL. I mean, every time we see the guy play, he makes plays. He does well. I'm under no delusions of him being some elite franchise quarterback, but this continued dismissal of him by people, I just don't understand it. And then there was Steven Montez. So the second half, as I thought it would be, ended up being the Steven Montez show. And he ended up looking pretty good, didn't he? 17 of 24 for 108 yards, a touchdown and an interception. He took one sack. I mean, it's all relative, right? And I know there's a thing of, well, he's playing against all these backups. Well, yeah, he's also playing with a bunch of backups, and he himself is a backup. So him making plays is impressive. Now, you know, you don't go crazy with it, but it was nice to see Steven Montez look good, especially as the game went on, off him having not looked that great in training camp practice so far. Montez led quite a touchdown drive in the fourth quarter. The drive was a 15-play, 92-yard drive that resulted in his late fourth quarter first and goal four-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Lamar Miller off Montez running to his right patiently waiting and then finding Miller near the back right corner of the end zone. The touchdown drew Washington within two at 15-13. Washington went for two. Montez on the two-point attempt did connect with Antonio Gandy-Golden, but the play uh, for two overturned via replay review and ruled as not a catch. But how about some of these plays by Montez on the touchdown drive? Second snap of the drive, Montez, a second and 10, 11-yard shotgun completion to Dax Milne. I thought Milne looked good at times in this game on Thursday night. Fifth snap of the drive, Montez, a third and eight. 14-yard shotgun scramble as he did a nice job of turning up field 
to get the necessary yardage. We know that Montez is an athlete. We certainly saw the athleticism on display on that play. Six snap of the drive. Montez, a first and 10, 21 yard shotgun completion to who? The athletic freak, Samis Reyes. The man who has never played football at any meaningful level. That was a nice play. He took a shot, too, and he got up to tell about it. Uh, so that was good to see, that 21-yard hookup between Montez and Reyes. So nice to see that. You know, Ron Rivera has referenced Steven Montez as being a developmental quarterback. You always wonder about something like that, right? Like, is he just here to eat up snaps, or is he, in fact, someone who the team views as being worthy of being developed. And maybe Ron Rivera looks at Montez and says, hey, it's a long shot, but I do like some things about this guy. Let's keep him around and see what he can do. He was with the team last season, at least for now. He's with the team for this season. So Montez, Heineke, and Fitzpatrick all ended up delivering in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots. Speaking of delivering, Dr. George Verghese delivers excellent medical care when it comes to your skin. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a big Washington football team fan. He's a board-certified dermatologist at Mohs Surgeon. This guy knows what he's doing. He's an expert in the field. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology. So if you have an issue with your skin, if you have a concern about your skin, contact Dr. Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute also focuses on skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You do have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. When you call, make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. If you're dealing with skin cancer, if someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, first of all, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well, but second of all, Be mindful of you having options. SRT is an option. Find out more by contacting Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The phone number again is 301-396-3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So we roll along here, the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's preseason opening, 22-13 loss at the New England Patriots. Takeaway number two, we already are back to being on Dustin Hopkins watch. It's incredible, isn't it? All it took is one preseason game, and we're right back to yelling and screaming about Dustin Hopkins. He missed a first quarter 40-yard field goal attempt. He missed a third quarter 50-yard field goal attempt. He was wide left on both tries, and he was way wide left on that missed 
50-yard field goal attempt. That missed 50-yard field goal attempt, that wasn't pretty, okay? And I know 50 isn't necessarily a gimme, but in today's NFL, with today's kickers, you should be making a 50-yard field goal. You should at least be close on a 50-yard field goal. Dustin Hopkins wasn't close. And yes, I said close. It means you're close. No, Brucey. Dustin Hopkins was not close on that 50-yard try in the third quarter on Thursday night. So here was Ron Rivera during his post-game press conference late night on Thursday night. Don Ron got asked if he had a sense of what went wrong for Hopkins on those missed field goal tries. Yeah, we did. Um, you know, we'll take a look at it. We'll, we'll define it even more um, and, and really just kind of get that thing worked out. I mean, more so than anything else for the most part. All right. And then came the following follow-up question. Is there a concern about Dustin Hopkins? No, there's not a concern. I, I think it's disappointing, you know, but uh, at, uh, at the end of the day, we have a new operation that's got to continue to get worked out. And we've got two more, two more preseason games to get it corrected. Yeah, you do. You have the holder, Tressway. You have the long snapper, the cheese man, Cameron Cheeseman. And you have the kicker, Dustin Hopkins, and you need to be good on your field goal tries. I mean, that's an obvious thing to say, but it's not something that's always the case here with Dustin Hopkins. He had a weird year last year. He ended up kicking really well down the stretch of the season. That is true. But Dustin Hopkins began the season in a bad way. Dustin Hopkins in the 2020 regular season missed one kick, a field goal attempt or an extra point attempt in seven of Washington's first 10 games. And Ron Rivera at one point admitted to thinking about replacing Dustin Hopkins. 30-27 loss at the Detroit Lions in week 10 of last season. Dustin Hopkins did have a first quarter 38-yard field goal and also a clutch game time 41-yard field goal with 16 seconds left in the fourth quarter. But he missed a 43-yard field goal attempt in the second quarter. And Ron, during a Zoom press conference the day after the game, said that the team was, quote, talking about and discussing, end quote, replacing Dustin Hopkins. Now, like I said, he did get better as last season went on. Dustin Hopkins over Washington's final six games of the regular season went 13 of 14 on field goals off over the first 10 games, having gone just 14 of 20 on field goals. And Hopkins was huge in that 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13, went three of three on field goals, all of which were lengthy, a 49-yarder with one second left in the second quarter, a 45-yarder with 204 left in the fourth quarter, and a 45-yarder with 17 seconds left in the fourth quarter. It's also worth mentioning that Dustin Hopkins in the 2020 season dealt with a right groin injury. So we don't know if maybe the groin was the reason for some of those struggles. But whatever the case, there were struggles. And there were more struggles on Thursday night with Dustin Hopkins going 0 for 2 on field goals. So front five, my five biggest takeaways from Washington's preseason opening, 22-13 loss at the New England Patriots. Takeaway number three, Jarrett Patterson, as expected, looked really good. Jarrett Patterson being a preseason hero for the Washington football team this preseason, to me, is as predictable as the sun rising in the East. He is a running back. He is a diminutive player. So like right away, he's a fan favorite and he's a local. So Jarrett Patterson is an undrafted rookie running back out of the university at Buffalo. 
It's not the University of Buffalo. It's not Buffalo University. It's the University at Buffalo. Uh, he is listed by Washington as being 5'8 and 195 pounds. He went to St. Vincent Pilate High School in Laurel, Maryland. The guy is fast. The guy is tough. And the guy is productive. He was super productive at Buffalo. Three consecutive 1,000-yard rushing seasons. He, over those three seasons for the Bulls, averaged 6.11 yards per carry and totaled 52 rushing touchdowns. And Patterson, on Thursday night, led Washington in both rushing yards and receiving yards. He had 10 carries for 40 yards, and he had four receptions for 30 yards on four targets. Take you back to Washington's fifth offensive drive, the drive that resulted in the Peyton Barber late second quarter, third and goal, one yard, I formation handoff touchdown run. The first snap of that drive, a Jarrett Patterson first and 10, five yard under center handoff run. The second snap of that drive, Jarrett Patterson, a second and five, 12 yard shotgun read option run on which he totally faked out Pat's linebacker, Ronnie Perkins. There is a burst to Jared Patterson that's a lot of fun to watch. And then later on that drive was that great Taylor Heineke completion to Patterson on the third and 10. Ninth snap, Heineke, third and 10, 11-yard shotgun completion to Patterson on a broken play. Uh, Heineke off running backwards and to his right somehow finds Patterson, who makes a difficult diving forward catch at the two. Rod Rivera during his postgame press conference on whether he was surprised by Patterson's performance. No, he, he didn't. He didn't surprise us. I mean, that's what we saw in the young man. I mean, he had a terrific college career, and he's had a good camp so far. And, and I think we expected him to do some some positive things. So it was good to watch. Yes, it was. Now it does still seem like an uphill climb for Jarrett Patterson to make Washington's season opening roster, but who knows? You know, Peyton Barber. It's interesting with him. He lost weight this past offseason. You say to yourself, "Well, geez, why would he do that? He was such an effective short yardage back for Washington." last season. And then what does he do on Thursday night? Another short yardage run for Peyton Barber, right? Peyton Barber had that late second quarter, third and goal, one yard eye formation handoff touchdown run. And that's the thing. Peyton Barber does not get enough credit for how efficient he was last season on short yardage runs. You shouldn't just take that for granted. I wouldn't be so quick to just cut Peyton Barber and have Jarrett Patterson as my RB3. But maybe you keep four running backs on the season opening roster. And certainly there's always a possibility that you could practice squad Jarrett Patterson. I mean, as impressive as he was on Thursday night, you know, let's not let's not turn him into Dalvin Cook, okay? Like uh, he, he was undrafted and we always do this. We feel like, oh, there's no way we could get that guy into the practice squad. There's no way that guy would clear waivers. And then like inevitably so many of these guys end up clearing waivers. So, you know, I think Jarrett Patterson will be a part of the Washington football team in some way come the regular season. I do very much believe that. Takeaway number four, Washington's first half defense was mixed. I don't really put a ton of stock into what we saw from Washington's defense. As everyone knows, you're not looking at a game for which there was a lot of game planning, but we did see the defense give some stuff up in the first half. And that's what you really care about defensively in a preseason game, right? What happened in the first half? What happened with your starters and primary backups out there? So there were some good things defensively, Take you to the Patriots' first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter three and out. The first snap of that drive, Cole Holcomb tackling Patriots running back Damian Harris on a first and 10, two-yard I-formation handoff run. Love seeing that. And then two snaps later, Chase Young. How about this play? Chase Young, the predator, just abusing the Pats left tackle Isaiah Wynn and blasting Cam Newton for what looked like a sack strip ultimately was deemed a third and eight shotgun incompletion. 
But whatever the case, excellent pass rush there by Chase Young. But then you got the Patriots' second offensive drive. This was the one that resulted in the Quinn Nordine first quarter 35-yard field goal for a 3-0 Pats lead. First snap of the drive, William Jackson, the third, got beat on a Cam Newton first and 10, 11-yard offset eye completion to Pats receiver Jacoby Myers. Also on the play, by the way, a defensive holding penalty on Landon Collins that was declined. Fourth snap of the drive, John Bostic had a bad missed tackle on a Cam Newton first and 10, 16-yard under center completion to tight end Janu Smith, who, yes, is a difficult guy to bring down, no doubt, but John Bostic was guilty of failing on an attempted tackle on that play. And then the fifth snap of that drive, Cam, a first and 10, 17-yard shotgun completion to running back James White on a screen. We have seen Washington get scorched on screens in the past. You saw that in that instance. The next Pats offensive drive. This one resulted in the Quinn Nordeen second quarter 50-yard field goal for a 6-0 Pats lead as the Patriots kicker, and this guy isn't even the Patriots' first string kicker. He's the team's second string kicker. He connected on a 50-yard field goal in this game on Thursday night. Our guy, unfortunately, did not. Uh, But this drive, which was Mac Jones' first drive of the game, saw Washington give some stuff up. Third snap of the drive, final snap of the first quarter. Mac Jones, third and five, seven-yard shotgun completion to receiver Kristen Wilkerson, who beat the corner, Torrey McTire. Fourth snap of the drive, first snap of the second quarter, Mac Jones, first and 10, 13-yard offset eye play action completion to receiver Kendrick Bourne. Fifth snap of the drive, running back Sony Michelle, a first and 10, nine-yard eye formation toss run. So the Patriots were moving the football, but Washington did respond. Seventh snap of the drive, McTire, great coverage on receiver Christian Wilkerson on a Mac Jones, first and 10, shotgun deep in completion intended for Wilkerson. It's tough to gauge defense in these games. I mean, what you obviously don't want is for you just to get run over throughout the game or for you to give up one big-time passing play after another. You certainly didn't see that in this game on Thursday night. And honestly, I think what sticks with most of us as Washington football team fans was that Chase Young play. Just Chase early in the game, looking like the guy we want to see. Again, having his way with the Pats left tackle, Isaiah Wynn, and then smashing Cam Newton. And you know, it's interesting to see that and to think about that, I know for me, because one of the visuals from early career Cam Newton, getting hit from behind by Brian Arakpo and Arakpo failing to dislodge the football. Now think about that. How many quarterbacks could get hit from behind, hit from the blind side, and not lose their grasp on the football? And yet, that's what happened when Arakpo hit Cam. In this case, Washington's edge rusher hit Cam, and the ball came loose. Now, again, the play was ruled as an incompletion. It was ruled as a pass, uh, but whatever. Chase Young knocked that football out of the grasp of Cam Newton. Was awesome to see that. Arakpo was one thing. Chase Young is another thing. And then takeaway number five from Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots. Washington did have a big night on returns. You know, the special team's thought that sticks with most of us, right, is Dustin Hopkins going over two on field goals. But don't lose sight of Washington having a really good game on returns. A bunch of big returns by Washington in this game. So the man who I believe will be Washington's primary punt return man this coming season, DeAndre Carter, not one but two impressive punt returns in the first half. He had a first quarter 18-yard punt return, had a second quarter 20-yard punt return. Dax Milne, who Washington took with its third seventh round pick in the 2021 NFL draft. He had a third quarter, 19-yard punt return. Steven Sims got in on the act 
uh, albeit on kickoff returns. He had a late fourth quarter 32-yard kickoff return. He also, though, had a fourth quarter punt return for no gain because that's what Steven Sims does on punt returns. He is the king of the punt return for no gain. But you had three different punt returns in this game, each of at least 18 yards. Carter with an 18-yarder and a 20-yarder. Milne with a 19-yarder. I will take that for a team in Washington that has been so bad on punt returns in recent years. Washington in each of the last four regular seasons has been 25th or worse in the NFL in yards per punt return to say nothing of the fumbling problems that plague Steven Sims and Isaiah Wright on punt returns last regular season. So there you have it. The first installment of the front five, my five biggest takeaways from a Washington football game. Takeaway number one, all three of Washington's quarterbacks look good to varying degrees. Takeaway number two, we already are back to being on Dustin Hopkins' watch. Takeaway number three, Jarrett Patterson, as expected, looked really good. Takeaway number four, Washington's first half defense was mixed. And takeaway number five, Washington did have a big night on returns. Well, there was news relevant to us as Washington football team fans earlier in the day on Thursday. I'll address that after this. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So there was something that came up regarding the Washington football team on Thursday prior to Thursday night's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots. And this is something that came up that I wanted to discuss with you on this installment of the podcast. The Detroit Lions on Thursday released former Washington corner Quinton Dunbar. Yes, Quinton Dunbar, old Dunny, released by the Lions. They signed Dunbar as an unrestricted free agent on April 6th. They released Dunbar on August 12th. Quite the fall for Quinton Dunbar since he was traded by Washington. So Washington originally signed Quinton Dunbar as an undrafted free agent receiver out of Florida 
in May 2015. He, in August of that year, was converted into a corner per a suggestion from Jay Gruden. I've said this, Jay knew player personnel, especially, interestingly, defensive player personnel. It was at Jay's urging that Washington drafted Matt Ioannidis. It was at Jay's urging that Washington drafted Cole Holcomb. And it was at Jay's urging that Washington transformed Quentin Dunbar from receiver to corner. Uh, Anyway, Dunbar was mostly a backup over his first three seasons with Washington, 2015 through 2017. But Washington on New Year's Day 2018 signed Dunbar to a three-year $10.5 million contract extension with $5.25 million in total guarantees. And Dunbar blossomed as a starting corner over the 2018 and 2019 seasons, although each season was marred by injury. Dunbar missed 14 games over the 2018 and 2019 regular seasons. Let me repeat that. Quentin Dunbar missed 14 games over the 2018 and 2019 regular seasons. Then came the drama of the 2020 offseason. So the 2020 season was set to be a contract season for Dunbar. Dunbar in the 2020 offseason had one year left on his contract with a base salary of $3.25 million, none of which was guaranteed. He also had a roster bonus worth up to $250,000. Washington had just hired Ron Rivera as head coach. Trent Williams, who was boys with Dunbar, was in the midst of Trent's contract demands. And so Quinton, I believe, inspired by Trent, pulled a Trent and demanded a new contract. The Quinton Dunbar saga began on February 10th, 2020, which interestingly was the day that Ron Rivera had been hyping as when he and his staff would be meeting at the team facility to begin determining the direction of the team. Perhaps you recall this, Ron Rivera in the 2020 offseason kept talking up February 10th. February 10th comes and that's when Quinton Dunbar decides to start mouthing off about being unhappy. We on the morning of February 10th, 2020, got a report from Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington that Dunbar was planning on skipping OTAs. So again, Ron Rivera, new sheriff in town, ready to get things going. February 10th is the day on which we're going to really begin meeting and figuring out the direction of the franchise. And that's when Dunbar decides to put it out there that he plans on skipping OTAs that offseason due to having no guaranteed money left on his contract. The other reason that was given was that Dunbar saw what happened with Reuben Foster in the 2019 offseason, right? When Reuben suffered a torn left ACL, LCL, and MCL and nerve damage to his left knee during Washington's first OTA practice of the 2019 offseason. We then, on the evening of February 10th, 2020, got multiple reports that Dunbar wanted to be traded or released. But then two days later, February 12th, 2020, we got Dunbar softening his stance big time to Doc Walker. And I remember this because this was during my radio show with Doc. I'll never forget this. Doc and Dunbar started communicating during the show. Dunbar said that he wasn't requesting to be traded or released. He just wanted to see where he stood He also said that he was set to meet with Ron Rivera the next day, February 13th, 2020. Well, that meeting didn't last long and didn't go well. 
On February 20th, 2020, we got a tweet from ESPN NFL reporter Josina Anderson saying that Dunbar, quote, (laughs) had reached out to the team to discuss a reasonable contract restructure, but the club declined the conversation, end quote. Uh, Josina also said that Dunbar remained, quote, resolute in his desire to be released or traded, end quote. You see, what happened was Dunbar tried to hold up Ron. Dunbar tried to stick up Ron. Dunbar tried a money play with Ron, just like Trent tried. And Ron said to Dunny, just like Ron said to Trent, "Mm, no. These were the nascent months for Ron Rivera as Washington head coach. This was a time in which the old guard of Washington players, the guys who had been here for a while, the guys who had been a part of the circus, were testing Ron and trying to pull their crap with Ron. And Ron said, I ain't playing your reindeer games. And it was Ron's handling of the Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar situations that really got me believing in what Ron was doing. Ron wasn't here to play games. Ron wasn't here to appease malcontents. Ron wasn't here to be a mark and just give people new money. Ron was a new sheriff in town. Ron was here to establish law and order. Ron was here to clean up the mess of the previous 20 years. And he didn't give a you-know-what about what Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar, two guys who were barely available for actual games, wanted. Ron Rivera had taken over. He was the head coach in the coach-centric approach. He was the new head of the family. He was Don Ron. And he wasn't going to be taking any garbage from anybody. In fact, the Quentin Dunbar saga led to one of my favorite quotes from Ron Rivera. Ron, regarding Dunbar's contract demands, quote, he was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give, end quote. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Yes, I love that. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. Point blank period. And so Washington in March 2020 traded Dunbar to the Seattle Seahawks for a fifth round pick in the 2020 NFL draft. Now you may remember there was quite a bit of angst over Washington only getting a fifth round pick back for Quentin Dunbar. Wasn't he worth more than a fifth round pick? We only got back a fifth round pick for Dunny? Why? What is Ron doing? What is he thinking in only trading the great Quentin Dunbar for just a fifth round pick? Well, Washington used that 2020 fifth round pick on Kalik Hudson, who last regular season led Washington by miles in special team snaps and is a popular breakout candidate for Washington for this coming season. Now, we'll see what Kalik Hudson ends up being, but he's a promising player right now. And I ask you, in this moment, would you rather have Kalik Hudson or Quinton Dunbar? Dunbar in the 2020 regular season played in just six games for the Seahawks. Again, not available. He dealt with a knee injury. He underwent knee surgery in December 2020. You know, Dunbar never did get the contract extension that he was looking for. The 2020 season did end up being a contract season for Dunbar. He has an unrestricted free agent in the 2021 offseason, lingered on the free agent market until signing with the Lions on April 6th, but they then released him on Thursday. Ron Rivera has been proven right in the Quinton Dunbar saga. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give. 
Exactly. All right, well, what was a mess of a series for the Nationals at the New York Mets from a scheduling standpoint ended up being a mess of a series for the Nats from a results standpoint. A three-game sweep, 8-7 loss in a rain-suspended game that started on Tuesday night and ended on Wednesday, and then a doubleheader sweep on Thursday afternoon, 4-1-7 inning loss in Game 1, a 5-4-7 inning walk-off loss in Game 2, in which the Nats overcame a 4-1 seventh inning deficit, but then got walked off in the bottom of the seventh. Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the seventh, giving up a one-out walk-off solo homer to Pete Alonso on a towering shot, and that was it. Uh, the Nats now are 15 games below 500 at 50-65. and 65. The Nats, since winning 14 of 17 games to get to 40-38, and 38 are 10-27. and 27. And that coincides right with the start of July. So the Nats, since the start of July, have lost 27 of 37 games. Always remember, the losing was happening long before the sell-off, although the sell-off clearly has exacerbated things. Uh, The sell-off has made the Major League team worse, at least for this season, but this already was a bad team. I think that is important to keep in the back of your mind. And so here we are now, and the Nationals, you know, they're just not very good. And this is going to continue here for the rest of of this regular season. You know, any thought that maybe the Nats would rise up, especially in this woeful National League East, it's not happening. Uh, The Nats continue to lose, and the roster is just not truly Major League caliber. What you're hoping for is that as the rest of this season goes on, you see improvement from guys and that you feel appreciably better about guys at the end of this season. But for now, the Nats are just not a very good team. The Nats need a lot of things to go well in order for the Nats to win a baseball game. And it's hard to win that way. We need like every little thing to go well. And one of the areas in which this really is the case right now is the bullpen. Now, I think it's important to remember, it's not like the bullpen was locked down prior to the sell-off, okay? Brad Hand was struggling. Daniel Hudson was not looking as he had looked during his dominant stretch this season. So I don't think you could just say, well, you know, if only Hand and Hudson were here, things would be so great with the bullpen. Like, no, the bullpen wasn't great when those guys were here. However, things have gotten worse. And David Martinez right now is having to rely on a bunch of guys who are young and who are inexperienced. And so you're seeing these growing pains play out right in front of you. You know, the Nats are going with a number of young and or inexperienced relievers right now. You're getting performances that are all over the place. And that's what went down in this 5-4-7 inning walk-off loss at the Mets on Thursday afternoon. Davey ended up using three relievers, Gabe Klobositz, Tanner Rainey, and Kyle Finnegan. Klobositz was good. He tossed a perfect bottom of the fifth that included a four-pitch strikeout of Pete Alonso. But Tanner Rainey, who was the Nats 27th man for the doubleheader, you get to designate a 27th man when you play a doubleheader, was not good. Uh, Tanner Rainey, remember, was optioned to AAA Rochester on August 1st. He has not had a good season at all. He's dealt with injury. He's dealt with ineffectiveness. And he was ineffective once again on Thursday afternoon. He gave up two runs in the bottom of the six as he gave up a one-out two-run homer to Jonathan Villar to dead center on an 0-2 pitch, the homer going a projected 417 feet per stat cast. That was some shot by Villar. And then Finnegan got got in that bottom of the seventh inning, giving up the one-out walk-off solo homer to Pete Alonso on a big-time shot. That baseball was high in the air, and that baseball stayed high in the air for quite a while. Uh, we saw more bullpen struggles in the first game in this doubleheader sweep 
on Thursday afternoon. The 4-1-7 inning loss at the Mets. So this was a bullpen game. The Nets essentially started a reliever in this game. Started this guy, Sean Nolan, who made his first appearance in a Major League regular season game since October 2015. I talked about Nolan on the last installment of the podcast. This is another 30-something who the Nationals have called up from AAA Rochester this season. That may be as big of an indictment of the Nationals farm system as anything. How many 30-somethings the Nats have called up from AAA Rochester this year. And like I said, I know that there are 30-somethings at other teams' AAA affiliates. Like, I know that not every player in the minors for a baseball team is a guy in his early to mid-20s, but the Nats seem to have more of those types of players than most teams. And the Nats certainly, when they've needed extra bodies, have had to overly rely on those players this season. You know, way too many guys are called up who are, you know, cast-offs, vagabonds, people trying to reignite their careers as opposed to young guys on the come. And Sean Nolan, again, trying to reignite his career, had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015. And so he struggled on Thursday afternoon. I mean, what people expect, he gave up four runs in three innings on eight hits, which were a homer and seven singles. He gave up three runs in the bottom of the second on two singles and a two-out full count, three-run homer by Brandon Nimmo to right field. And Nolan was charged with giving up a run in the bottom of the fourth off giving up a leadoff single to Michael Conforto. But with the guys who were actually used as relievers in game one of the doubleheader sweep on Thursday afternoon. So again, I mean, very mixed results. Like Andres Machado officially tossed a scoreless inning, but he didn't look good to me. Machado in that Mets one run fourth allowed an inherited runner to score and giving up two singles and a hit by pitch. Uh, Javi Guerra did toss a scoreless fifth inning, but he gave up two singles. Jeffrey Rodriguez is the only guy who really looked locked down. He tossed a perfect bottom of the six, but we know that he's had his struggles uh, this year, especially when it comes uh, to pitching accurately and locating the baseball. So this is where you're at right now. You know, normally with a bullpen, you have your A bullpen and your B bullpen. The entire Nats bullpen right now is a B bullpen, and Davey Martinez is just waiting for someone to step forward. It initially looked like maybe Kyle Finnegan would be that guy, but he has not looked very good lately in his role as a Nationals closer. You know, guys like Gabe Klobositz and Mason Thompson, the Twin Towers, each guy listed as 6'7". Each guy looks the part. Each guy certainly has talent, but neither guy has been outstanding so far. So you just got to hope that multiple people emerge here as the rest of this season goes on. The only true starting pitcher who the Nationals made usage of on Thursday afternoon was Eric Fetty. And this was another sort of so-so, you know, ho-hum, Eric Fetty kind of outing. Uh, He wasn't awful, but he wasn't very good. Two runs in four innings. I mean, that's all you got from Fetty on Thursday afternoon. Two runs in four innings. He gave up six hits, three doubles, and three singles. He did have four strikeouts versus one walk. He did begin his outing well. He began his start with three scoreless innings, although he, over those three scoreless innings, gave up a double, two singles, and a walk. Fetty then allowed two runs in the bottom of the fourth on a leadoff full count double by Michael Conforto, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. A first pitch RBI double by J.D. Davis, a single by Jonathan Villar, and an RBI force out grounder by James McCann. I just, to me with Fetty, like we've had this conversation many times, I want to see him be better. I want to see him take a step forward as a major league starting pitcher. It looked like he was doing that earlier this season, but he really has regressed over the last few weeks. I don't know how much of that may have to do with the injury he dealt with, his uh, stint on the 10-day injured list due to a left oblique strain. But since Fetty came off the 10-day IL, he's made eight starts. He, over the eight starts, has allowed 28 earned runs in 36 innings. He just hasn't been very good. And while he wasn't wretched on Thursday, he also wasn't that good on Thursday either. And like, you really would like to see him emerge as the rest of the season goes on. But at this point with Fetty, 
just like at this point with Joe Ross, I think each guy may well just be what he is, which is a number four, number five starter. That's not nothing. You need guys like that. But in terms of leading this rotation to prominence, uh, it's not going to be because of Eric Fetty and Joe Ross that this rotation gets back to prominence. I think that's becoming clearer and clearer. It's going to be because of guys like Josiah Gray and hopefully Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge. Uh, the Nationals offensively were not great over the course of this doubleheader. Again, I mean, this is not a roster that's in a great place right now. I mean, the Nationals lineup as is, is a makeshift lineup. When you get something, especially like game two of a doubleheader, just like, you know, when you get a day game after a night game, you get essentially a makeshift lineup of a makeshift lineup. And so that's what you're working with here. I will, though, give the Nats credit. They did rally. You know, the boys did battle, as Davey Martinez likes to say. In game two on Thursday afternoon, uh, the Nats scored three runs in the top of the seventh to tie the game at four. So I give the Nats a lot of credit for that. As uh, sketchy as the Nats bullpen was, uh, sketchy was the Mets bullpen, especially in game two of the doubleheader. Two key moments in that three-run Nats seventh. Luis Garcia had a leadoff four-count single. And Andrew Stevenson, who was a Nats starting left fielder and number two batter. Like, that tells you a lot that Andrew Stevenson is your number two batter in this game two on Thursday afternoon. He had a big hit. So you know what? <laughs> Maybe it kind of worked out with Stevenson as a number two batter. A two-out game-tying, two-run single off Mets reliever Jay Reese Familia in the top of the seventh inning to tie the game at four. Some other observations from the Nats in the doubleheader and in the series. Uh, Juan Soto, who, you know, the more and more you think about him, right? Like how many pitches is he going to get to hit the rest of this season? It doesn't feel like many, although he did do a really good job uh, generating hits in game one of the series. But Soto, over the course of the doubleheader on Thursday afternoon, 0 for 2 with five walks. I mean, how about that line? 0 for 2 with five walks with Soto over the course of the two games. You're going to get a lot of that with Soto, right? The walks are going to keep coming because he's the only real threat in this Nationals lineup right now, or certainly the biggest threat. Um, Carter Keeboom does continue to hit. That was good. Continue to hit in this doubleheader on Thursday. Keeboom in the game one loss coming through with two hits. He had a double and a single, a one-out single to the left center field gap on a one-two pitch in the top of the second, and a one-out first pitch double to the left center field gap in the top of the seventh. And then Keeboom in the game two loss, uh, another hit in that game. He had a one-out single and the top of the second. He finished that game one for three with a strikeout. You know, Carter Keeboom, defensively, there are questions, no doubt. But offensively, Carter Keeboom this season at the major league level has an OPS of 785. That's pretty good. I mean, that's, you know, his bat is the reason he was a well-regarded prospect just a few years ago. And the bat so far has been pretty good. Not great, not elite, but pretty good. I think a lot better than people would have thought, uh, given his previous struggles as a hitter at the major league level. I thought it was a mixed doubleheader for Victor Robles. He did have an RBI double in the game one loss. That was good to see. A first pitch RBI double down the left field line in the top of the sixth inning. He finished the game one for three with the double and a strikeout. But then Robles really struggled in the game two loss. 0 for four with a strikeout and left five men on base. Speaking of struggling, the Nats in this three-game sweep at the Mets got nothing from their first baseman. This was a rough series for Josh Bell and to a lesser extent, Ryan Zimmerman. Bell was the Nats starting first baseman in games one and two. Zim was the Nats starting first baseman in game three. Bell in game one of the series, 0 for 5, left four men on base. Bell in game two of the series, so game one of the doubleheader, 0 for 3 with a strikeout, left four men on base. He grounded into a killer 4-6-3 double play with the bases loaded to end the Nats' one-run six inning. And then Bell as a pinch hitter in game three of the series. So game two of the doubleheader struck out with runners on first and second and no outs in the top of the seventh inning. Ryan Zimmerman was the Nats' starting first baseman in game three of the series. Game two of the doubleheader 0-4 with three strikeouts 
and left four men on base. So not a single hit over the course of the three games from your two first basemen, Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman. Next up for the Nats, a five-game homestand. Three games against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park Friday through Sunday. Then no game on Monday. Then a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park on Tuesday and Wednesday. And we arrive now at the Orioles, for whom Thursday was a major news-breaking day. I'll get to the game portion of the Orioles Thursday in a bit, but we had major Orioles news on Thursday. Chris Davis announced his retirement. Davis on Thursday announcing his retirement, said Davis in a statement released by the O's, quote, after an extended time dealing with my injury and recent hip surgery, I inform the Orioles about my decision to retire effective today. I want to thank the Orioles partnership group led by the Angelos family, the Orioles organization, my teammates and coaches, the University of Maryland Children's Hospital with whom I will continue to be involved following my retirement, and of course, Birdland. Thank you all for the many memories I will cherish forever. End quote. So Davis had been done for the 2021 season. Orioles executive vice president and general manager Mike Elias on May 19th had announced that Davis had undergone arthroscopic hip surgery and was done for the season. Chris Davis never played in more than one game this season, and that game was the Orioles' first exhibition game. That was it. Davis was said to have strained his lower back in the Orioles' first game of the 2021 Grapefruit League season and never played in another game in the 2021 exhibition season and never played in a game this regular season. The Orioles on March 26 put Davis on the 60-day injured list with a lower back strain. Manager Brandon Hyde in a pregame Zoom press conference on April 25th got asked about Davis. Hyde said, quote, just rehabbing. When asked where, Hyde said that he wasn't sure. So the Davis injury initially felt phony, to be totally honest with you. And I talked about this on the podcast. This felt like something that the Orioles and Davis had come up with to say, hey, look, we don't want you around the team anymore. We'll continue to pay you. We'll just say that you're injured and we'll park you on the 60-day injured list. But apparently, no, he was really injured. He underwent the surgery. Like that certainly seems to be legit. I don't think they faked the surgery. And now he, in fact, has announced his retirement. Uh, This season was supposed to be Davis's age 35 season. This season also is the penultimate year of his debacle of a contract. And that, of course, is the prism through which Chris Davis will forever be viewed, at least as a baseball player. The O's in January 2016 re-signed Davis to a seven-year, $161 million contract. Now, him retiring on Thursday still means that he will be getting the rest of the money owed to him, although there were multiple reports that his 2022 salary will become deferred here over the next three years. So he's getting his money, just maybe in a slightly different way. But this doesn't like fundamentally change the Orioles being on the hook for the rest of that contract. But understand, there was only one season left on that contract. 70-year, $161 million deal that was signed in January 2016. And I will say this, and I will not lie to you about this. I was in favor of the Orioles re-signing Chris Davis. More wrong, I could not have been. Chris Davis was a force for the Orioles for a four-year stretch, 2012 through 2015. He was an outstanding hitter. Uh, Davis led the majors in homers in 2013 with 53. He then led the majors in homers again in 2015 with 47. Davis, over those four seasons, 2012 through 2015, had a slash line of a batting average of 256, an on-base percentage of 342, 
a slugging percentage of 533. His OPS plus over those four seasons was 136. Again, really good hitter. When you look at Chris Davis in terms of wins above replacement per baseball reference, Davis in 2013 had a B-war of 7.1. That's MVP caliber. Davis in 2015 had a B-war of 4.9. That's really good. And Chris Davis wasn't one of these, you know, overweight, lumbering first basemen. Chris Davis was an athlete. Chris Davis could play multiple positions. Yes, Chris Davis brought position flex to the table. Uh, Chris Davis, over those four seasons, 2012 through 2015, played first base, played third base, played right field, played left field. So when his contract was up and the Orioles clearly had screwed up in not re-signing Nelson Cruz the previous offseason... And the Orioles loved to cry poor and like never spent money on anyone. And Davis had been so good over the previous four years, again, 2012 through 2015. Yes, I advocated for the Orioles to re-sign Davis. And I liked the contract at the time. I mean, seven years is a long time. But $161 million as mega money baseball contracts go really isn't that much. We've seen so many $200 plus million deals. For Davis to be re-signed to a $161 million deal wasn't like some oh-my-God moment in sports history where you said, I can't believe this guy just got that contract. Davis was extremely mediocre over the first two seasons of the contract, 2016 and 2017, and then the bottom fell out. Chris Davis was atrocious over the previous three seasons, 2018 through 2020. I mean, it was embarrassing what Chris Davis was as a major league player. Davis, over those three seasons, had a batting average of 169, an on-base percentage of 251, a slugging percentage of 299. I mean, the same guy who routinely slugged in the 500 slugged 299 from 2018 through 2020. If you look at him by means of OPS plus, his OPS plus over those three seasons, 18 through 20 was 50. 50. League average is 100. His OPS plus was 50. Davis over those three seasons had a B war of minus 5.1. Yes, minus 5. Point one wins above replacement per baseball reference for Chris Davis from 2018 through 2020. Again, complete embarrassment and things got ugly. And people don't like to talk about these things and you rarely read or hear about these things, but there was ugliness when it came to the Chris Davis saga with the Orioles. Chris Davis had to be held back from going after Brandon Hyde in a dugout incident on August 7th, 2019. 14-2 Orioles loss at the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. You can find the footage of this online. Chris Davis had to be held back from going after Brandon Hyde in the dugout during that game. There also was this, and I will never forget this. May 23rd, 2018, the O's had an 11-1 loss at the Chicago White Sox. After that game, Masson Orioles analyst Jim Palmer, the great Jim Palmer, sounded off in a manner in which you almost never see team broadcasters sound off. And this is part of what makes Jim Palmer such a great broadcaster, brutal honesty. And, you know, honestly, he can get away with stuff that many other people can't get away with. But still, Jim Palmer will speak truth in a way that many other team broadcasters won't because those team broadcasters are afraid of losing their jobs. But Jim Palmer, after this game, questioned Davis's work ethic and essentially called him a phony during the O's Extra postgame show, Palmer's comments about Davis had to do with Davis having not worked all that much with the Orioles hitting coach Scott Coolball, 
Those comments were backed up by Coolball the following day. Not a single person who covered the Orioles that season, the previous season, spoke or wrote about Davis the way that Palmer spoke on that day, May 23rd, 2018. Again, that kind of honesty is why Jim Palmer is so good as an analyst. Uh, And I'll never forget that. And again, there was an ugliness to this Chris Davis saga that is impossible to forget if you're an Orioles fan. So he retires. His career obviously ends in a terrible way. You know, I don't think that Chris Davis is some awful human being. He has done a lot of charity work. Like, I don't want to just sit here and make the guy out to be some sort of demon. But this goes down as one of the worst contracts in pro sports history. I mean, I don't know how you say it any other way. Seven years, $161 million, and the contract was a flop, a complete and total flop. And the only saving grace is that, again, it wasn't one of these, you know, 200 plus million dollar deals or $300 million deals. I mean, I've brought this up and we've talked Steven Strasburg. That contract is 70 years, $245 million. You know, that contract right now looks much worse than the Chris Davis contract. We'll see what ends up happening with Steven Strasburg off the surgery to correct the thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, But yeah, man, there are some contracts that work out spectacularly. There are some contracts that are pushes. And then there are some contracts that are abject failures. And the Chris Davis contract, undeniably, is an all-time abject failure. And I come back to something that I brought up on the podcast recently. The Orioles in the 2014-2015 offseason decided not to re-sign Nelson Cruz and Andrew Miller. When looking back on it, the Orioles should have re-signed both guys. The Orioles in the 2015-2016 offseason did re-sign Chris Davis and Darren O'Day. And you look back on that, you say the Orioles should not have re-signed those guys. The O's went 0 for 4 over those two off-seasons in terms of four prominent free agents and what should have taken place. And that is part of why the Orioles ended up falling off a cliff the way they did late in the 2017 season and then truly beginning with the 2018 season. And the Orioles are still trying to recover from all this. You know, it starts with the Orioles farm system, but there were other things that led to the demise of the Orioles. And those wrong decisions uh, in terms of those free agents, that's a part of the Orioles story and the collapse of the Orioles off the team making the playoffs three times in five years, 2012 through 2016. So with the Orioles, uh, they did get swept this week by the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, a 9-4 loss on Tuesday night, a 5-2 loss on Wednesday night, and then a 6-4 loss on Thursday. So this is now eight consecutive losses for the Orioles. They are an American League worst 38-75. and They have an AL worst run differential of minus 176. And what was maybe as bothersome as anything from this three-game sweep to the Tigers at Camden Yards was John Means struggling again in this 6-4 loss on Thursday. You know, John Means was so good early this season, and just over the last few months, for a variety of reasons, he's just not been that good. Uh, Means on Thursday, six runs in four and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, three homers, a triple, a double, and three singles. He issued a walk. He had just three strikeouts. Now, he did toss three scoreless innings, but he then gave up five runs in the top of the fourth on two homers, a double, a single, and a walk. One of the homers, by the way, was a one-out first pitch two-run homer by ex-Oriole Renato Nunez. Means allowed another run in the top of the fifth and giving up a leadoff homer to Robbie Grossman. Means later issued a one-out triple and then was pulled from the game. Now, John Means had been okay in each of his previous two starts, but again, overall, he just hasn't had a lot of success over these last few months. I don't know if he's still hurting or what, 
John Means was on the 10-day injured list for about a month and a half, June 6th to July 20th with a left shoulder strain. Means in the 9-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on July 20th, so in his return start from the 10-day IL, allowed five runs in five innings. Then Means in a 5-4 win over the Nationals at Camden Yards on July 25th, allowed four runs in six and two-thirds innings. Like I said, his two most recent starts prior to this one on Thursday weren't that bad. 5-2 win at the Detroit Tigers on July 31st, one run in six innings. 10-6 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Camden Yards last Friday night. Two runs, one earned in five innings. But then Means really got shelled in this loss to the Tigers at Camden Yards on Thursday. A bright spot for the Orioles in this 6-4 loss to the Tigers at Camden Yards on Thursday was, well, who else this season? Cedric Mullins. How about the job by Cedric Mullins in this game? He has three hits in the game, all of which were singles, but he also has a steal of home in the game. So Mullins in the bottom of the first had a leadoff single and then a steal of home while Anthony Santander was caught in a rundown between first and second base. So this wasn't necessarily a work of art from a standpoint of that's how you draw it up, but it ended up playing out in a very nice way. And I tell you what, if you go back and watch the play, Cedric Mullins astutely waits until the Tigers' first baseman, again, the former Oriole, Renato Nunez, was running towards second base in the rundown to break for home. So there was a a real intellect behind what Cedric Mullins did. He waited for Nunez to be charging towards second base. Nunez had the ball, and then Mullins broke for home. So that made for a much more difficult throw for Nunez, who essentially had to throw across his body and throw against the direction in which he was running. So smart base running by Mullins. He also had a leadoff single in the bottom of the third and a one-out single in the Orioles' one-run seventh inning. He is by far the biggest bright spot for the Orioles this season, okay? There are other bright spots. There are other people to be excited about, but Cedric Mullins is the number one player on the Orioles this year. The guy has a batting average of 322, an on-base percentage of 387, a slugging percentage of 549. He has 20 homers on the season. He's been so good defensively as well. There's just nothing not to like about Cedric Mullins. He's had such a breakout season. Hopefully, this is truly who he is, and the Orioles have themselves a franchise center fielder for years to come. But to see him do as he did just in that first inning is something that's hard to forget. And in another ugly season for the Orioles, there's nothing better than the season that Cedric Mullins has had. Next up for the O's, a seven-game road trip at the top two teams in the American League East. So what is currently an eight-game Orioles losing streak could be a whole lot larger by the time this seven-game road trip is done. You have three games at the Boston Red Sox, followed by four games at the AL-leading Tampa Bay Rays. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The weekend, always a good chance to catch up on anything that you may have missed. New show each weekday, Monday through Friday. So if you've missed anything that has been going on with the Washington football team, I've got you covered on this podcast. Tuesday show, episode 119, I did a deep dive on the importance of the context of today's NFL when evaluating Washington's defense from last season and for this coming season. Wednesday show, episode 120, I talked about Montez Sweats and Chase Youngs and the Washington defense's record-breaking sack potential and about Washington's greatest combined sack seasons off Sweats saying that he and Young, quote, want to go get the combined sack record, end quote. Thursday show, episode 121, I talked Washington football team with former Washington corner Fred Smoot 
Uh, Smoot went off on why Taylor Heineke will ultimately have a Kurt Warner-type career, why Benjamin St. Juice will be a candidate for Defensive Rookie of the Year, parallels between Rod Rivera and Marty Schottenheimer and more. Email from Dave, a.k.a. Yano. Love how Smoot gave Taylor a new name, Tyler Heineke. Uh, yes, Smoot did keep calling Taylor Heineke, Tyler Heineke, but that's okay. Hey, maybe Taylor's changing his first name to Tyler, and Smoot's ahead of the curb. Who knows? Anyway, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. He was looking for something that we weren't prepared to give.